Well, good morning. It's a great privilege to be here uh, in your church. I had a chance to be here about a year ago. Uh, Mike and Cindy Veach are, are good friends, and uh, Mike and I are colleagues at Gordon, so we're here for Andre's funeral. And I was just so impressed with the ministry of this church and the ways that you all have reached out to each family and to others. We're grateful for the many Gordon connections. And uh, if you have a student, a high school student in your family, you should encourage all of them to go to Gordon College. <laughs> Just a great privilege to be able to be here. You know, it's interesting. We're, we're having new student orientation this weekend. And so lots of people who have moved onto campus. And Rebecca, my wife, and I have a tradition of we greet all of the cars as they're coming onto campus, give them a bottle of water, want to make sure that they feel really welcome here. And different people will ask different questions as they get to know Gordon, and they'll say, you know, what drew you to Gordon? They'll ask me about what's your vision or your plan for Gordon College. But there's always a couple of people at New Student Orientation. Usually it's the grandparents who come up to me and ask the question they really want to know, exactly how old are you? <laughs> a few years ago when I was named Gordon's president, there was uh, some news attention about that. As it turned out, I was the youngest president appointed uh, to a nationally ranked uh, college university at that particular time. But it was funny, there were some news stories about it. Tom Phillips was on the search committee that brought me to Gordon. Tom has been a longtime member of uh, our board of trustees. He was the CEO of Raytheon for many, many years. Uh, Tom is the person who led Chuck Colson to Christ. Chuck, as you probably are aware, was in the Nixon White House, uh, served some time in prison because of Watergate and then came out and founded Prison Fellowship Ministries. So Tom is a, a legendary man, a really wonderful man. Tom was named the president of Raytheon at age 35, and when I was named Gordon's president, I was 37. So Tom put his arm around me one, one afternoon, and he said, you know, Michael, everybody's making a big deal about how young you are. But he said, my question to you is, what took you so long? <laughs> it's actually a very, very good question. And today's passage is a significant part of the journey that brought my family and I to Boston, an example of how neighbors ended up moving us along God's will. Let's uh, begin with a time of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before this scripture really wanting to hear your voice. Even familiar passages that we've heard dozens of times, we wanted to penetrate to our heart to seep into our minds and to our soul, that we could be in a different place, that we might be changed because we have encountered your word for us today. So I ask you, Lord, to take our, our minds and to think through them, to take my words and to speak through them, and to take our hearts and set them afire, that we might come and experience you in a powerful way this morning. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus is an interesting kind of teacher. He's what we would call a metaphorical theologian. Most theologians throughout church history have been more like philosophers. They make their points by reason, by logic. That's the approach of Aquinas, of Augustine, the approach of John Calvin, or in the 20th century, the approach of Reinhold Niebuhr or Karl Barth. But Jesus doesn't really make his argument like a philosopher. Instead, he's more like a dramatist or a poet. He tells stories and uses metaphors to communicate messages. It's interesting because if you tally up all of the different parables that Jesus told in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 39 different parables recorded in the four Gospels. 
and 28 of them appear here in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is an unusual writer of Scripture. To the best of our knowledge, he was the only Gentile to write a book of the Bible. And he didn't write just one book of the Bible, he wrote two, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And together they comprise 25% of the New Testament. So a lot of what we know from the New Testament came from this one writer who was actually a physician who wrote more like a historian. He wrote a sort of historical narrative. And that's why throughout church tradition and church history, when we recite, for example, at Christmas, the birth of Jesus, it's Luke's account that we typically turn to. And at Easter time, when we recount the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it's Luke's account that we turn to. Because he was a Gentile, he wrote differently than the other authors of the Gospels. Matthew's Gospel, for example, starts uh, with a genealogy of Jesus, tracing Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. Luke also begins with a genealogy, but he traces Jesus' heritage all the way back to Adam, the father of all humanity. In fact, much of the Gospel of Luke is a story about how Jesus' message reached out and touched and engaged those people who tended to be forgotten. That's why in Luke's Gospel, we get the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, and the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a cultural anthropologist named Kenneth Bailey who wrote a wonderful book a number of years ago called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He taught me a lot about this particular passage of Scripture. The parable of the Good Samaritan is probably the most famous of all of Jesus' teachings. We have all heard it many, many times. But Kenneth Bailey opened up my eyes to see it in a new and different way. For example, he reminded me of just sort of the context in which Jesus' parables would have been received. Historically, um, we see that Jesus' approach to teaching is a little bit different than maybe you or, 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 or me. Uh, I've been a college professor for many years, and oftentimes students are asking me questions. And I'm working hard to give them good answers that help them to learn. Jesus, though, takes a different approach. Most of the time when Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question back to the person. And that's what happens in this passage. An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't answer his question directly, and he's, instead he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer is then going to answer Jesus' question. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus then is going to answer the lawyer's first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do this, he says, and you will live. It's interesting because back in Jesus' day, if you were going to quote Scripture, if you were going to quote from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, you would always quote it in canonical order, the order it appears in Scripture. Now, you know that the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This particular passage where the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that appears in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The injunction to love your neighbor as yourself, that appears in Leviticus 19. So if the lawyer were doing things the conventional way, he would have first quoted Leviticus 19 and then Deuteronomy 6. But he doesn't. He reverses it. Why? Because the lawyer is actually a very smart man. 
He knows that we must first get our relationship with God right before we can get in right relationship with other people. And Jesus is, is impressed with his answer. Do this and you will live, Jesus said. Now, it's interesting because the lawyer asked a question that's actually a flawed question. He starts off and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When, in fact, the very nature of inheritance is that it comes to us not because we did anything, right? It comes to us as a gift because someone decided to bequeath something to us, either because we had a relationship or because we were in family with them, but we didn't do anything to inherit it. But Jesus recognizes the lawyer is trying to tap into a fundamental question that all of us have. How do I come to know eternal life? The lawyer's not satisfied with Jesus's answer. So he wants to push it a little bit further. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, when Jesus answers this question, the lawyer thinks there's probably two answers he could give. Either he's going to say, it's your fellow kinsman or countryman, someone who's a part of your extended family. Or Jesus might push the envelope a little bit more, and it might be that he says, it refers to the alien or the stranger within your gate. In other words, the people who live in geographical proximity to where, where you live. That's how we typically use the term neighbor today. The lawyer is wanting to justify himself, the Bible says, because he knows that either of those answers that Jesus gives, he's in pretty good shape because he's been kind to those people. He's been loving those people. He's actually loved them as he loves himself. You see the tendency to read Scripture selectively to justify yourself. It's as old as the Bible. <laughs> Teacher, he says, who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus is going to tell a story, but at the end of that story, Jesus is going to throw back a question at him. Which of these three do you think is a neighbor to the man who falls into the hands of robbers? The lawyer is going to answer Jesus' question. Jesus is then going to answer the lawyer's question. This particular passage, most famous of all Jesus' teaching, tells the story about a man who falls into the hands of robbers. A man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. As Jesus is telling this story, everybody in the audience is very familiar with this particular road. You see, it was a road that many Jews traveled from up on the hill in Jerusalem down to the city in Jericho. It's a 17-mile stretch that has many different twists and turns as you go down the hill. In fact, it's also a dangerous road because many robbers would lie in wait at those different corners, and they would particularly prey on the Jewish people who were coming down from their religious services. They beat them up, steal from them, and then sometimes those people actually die. It was such a dangerous part of the journey in the ancient Near East that it was referred to as the way of blood. So when Jesus tells a story about a man who falls into the hands of robbers, everybody in the audience who is Jewish is assuming this is one of our fellow Jews, and he is our, we relate to him. He's our guy who's been hurt badly. Jesus is then going to tell a story about three different people. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he sees the man, he decides to pass by on the other side. Back in Jesus' day, priests, they, they had many different requirements and regulations that were guiding their conduct. 
One of them related to um, a purification ritual you would have to go through if a priest came into contact with a dead body. Back in the Jewish culture, priests did not handle dead bodies. If they did, if they touched a dead body, they would have to go through a week-long purification ritual. And it wasn't just them, but it was their whole household. I was not aware, but back in Jesus' day, you didn't work if you were a priest, work for five days, and then have two days off. Instead, the routine was that you would work for seven days up in Jerusalem, and then you'd go home for seven days. And then you'd work for seven days, and then you'd be home for seven days. So the priest, he does what all of us do every single day. He made a judgment call. You see, he's the only one who is required to avoid a dead body. Everybody else, there's no stipulation about that. So he recognizes this is a, a frequent passageway. Many people are on this road. Somebody else is going to help this guy. Because he knew that if he touched this person who ended up being dead, then he's got to go grab his wife and kids, take them all the way back up to Jerusalem. His whole week off, he's going through this purification ritual. Then they go back home, and he's got to stay working for another week. He wants to be a really engaged dad. He wants to sort of hang out with his kids. So he recognizes somebody else can do this. And so, Scripture says, he passes by on the other side. The next person who comes by is a Levite. Levites were assistants who worked with the priests. Everybody assumes, as Jesus is telling the story, that the Levite who's passing by is actually the assistant to the priest who just went ahead. But Levites, they were not as learned in the law. They didn't know the Hebrew scriptures as well. So when he sees his boss pass by on the other side, he assumes the priest knows something that he doesn't know. So he follows his boss's example, something you and I do all the time. Right? We assume they're more knowledgeable people, so we just follow what they do. So he passes by on the other side. And then Jesus is going to introduce another character. Now, this particular moment, the lawyer who's standing up in the back, he's actually getting pretty excited. Because back in Jesus' day, they didn't have Netflix or Amazon Prime. Instead, they passed the time by telling stories. It was an oral culture. And one of the conventions they followed were stock characters. So that you could sort of introduce a series of characters into a story, and pretty soon you kind of knew where the story was going. And that was part of the way the audience participated in the story. So much so that if I were to tell a story with stock characters where there's either parallelism or a hierarchy, you can sort of expect where things are going. Let's say I start by telling a story about the mayor of our town. And then the next character I introduced is the governor of our state. So you can automatically assume that the next character is going to be the president of our country, right? It follows a logical sequence. Well, back in Jesus' day, there were three classes of people who provided most of the leadership for religious ceremonies. There were the priests, the Levites, and then the Jewish laymen. Now, those Jewish laymen were people who were doctors, businessmen, lawyers, who would volunteer to help out on various things. The lawyer who's standing up in the back, he is himself a Jewish layman. And he's sitting there realizing, Jesus is telling a story, and I think I might become the hero. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're sitting there and people start talking nicely about somebody, and after a little while, you realize they're actually talking about you. 
They haven't said your name, but you realize they're saying. And so you're sort of looking down, trying to act real humble. But on the inside, you're like, all right, this is great. That's what the lawyer is feeling at this very moment. But Jesus decides to throw him a curveball and says, the third character is a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were hated or reviled by the Jewish community. And for good reason. They were not good people to the Jews. So the fact that Jesus would take their sworn enemy and make him to hear the story, that is too much to handle. It's really hard. And it's so hard that the lawyer at the end, when Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He just obliquely refers to him by saying, the one who showed mercy. Jesus then answers the real question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, go and do likewise. Ten years ago, if you had told me I'd be standing here in Andover, Massachusetts, as the president of Gordon College, I would have said, you're crazy. At the time, I was on the faculty at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And uh, I was a faculty member running a small center at the university. My wife is originally from Texas, and we had spent a number of years in Princeton, New Jersey, and in Oxford, England. And she says that there's a lasso that gets around the neck of a native Texan. And when they leave the state line, there's a really tight pull back to the motherland. And so when we had finally settled on a uh, faculty appointment at Rice, she felt like, I have come home to my people. And uh, we were relatively close to my family. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and that wasn't too far away. Her family was in Dallas. I was really active in our church. We, we were having a really great, a great, great time. One morning... I got a phone call from a search consultant named Price Harding, and he was assisting the Board of Trustees at Gordon College looking for a new president. Now, because of some of the research that I had done where I interviewed a number of different leaders in many different sectors, search consultants would call me from time to time and ask me for recommendations. So I assumed that's what was going on here. So I sort of tuned him out as he began talking about the opportunity, and I began going through my mental Rolodex to think of names I could suggest. After a couple minutes, he stopped talking, and so I said, okay, Price, I've got uh, three names for you. And he said, Michael, did you hear me? And I said, oh, yeah, of course, but I hadn't. And he said, "Um, no, we're interested in talking to you about the opportunity. And I said, oh, Price, that's very nice. Thank you. Thank you very much. But, you know, really, that's not for me. I've I've not been a, you know, department chair. I haven't been in administration. Uh, And by the way, you know, I think they have this thing up in Boston called snow. And I've never driven in that snow. And I said, they think people from Mississippi talk funny, but I'm here to tell you it's the people in Boston who talk funny. So, no, I really don't think so. He said, Michael, do you ever see yourself moving into administration? And I said, well, maybe, you know, like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years from now, but I got lots of other things that I think I need to do between now and then. And he said, well, would you just pray about it? And I said, okay, yes, I'll pray about it. And I did pray a couple of times, but it was like, oh, God, please help those cold people up in Boston find somebody. (laughs) It is not for me. 
A month later, the telephone rings in my office, and it was my mom. Mom never called me at the office, and I could tell from the first word she spoke, something was wrong. She said, Michael, I've got um, some really bad news for you. Uh, Trent was driving to work this morning. Now, Trent was my 32-year-old cousin. Uh, I'm an only child, so I don't have brothers or sisters. So he was the closest thing to a little brother that I had, and we were really, we were really tight. I had performed the wedding ceremony for, for him and for his wife a few years earlier, and they had three little kids, and we just loved Trent. As he was driving to work that morning, Mom said that the pavement was wet because it had been raining, and there was a highway patrolman who was driving down the highway. He was in front of Trent, and his car hydroplaned off of the highway into the ditch. Trent decided to get uh, pull over to the side and get out of his car to try and see if he could be helpful to the highway patrolman. And as he was doing that, there was an 18-wheeler who was coming behind. And the driver was trying to slow down, but he was not slowing down fast enough. So he slammed on the brakes, and as he did that, the rig part of the tractor-trailer swung around, and it, it hit Trent. And I said, Mom, is he going to be okay? And she said, no, honey, he died. That was November 2nd of 2010. It is still hard for me. Uh, the family asked me to give the eulogy at Trent's funeral. That was the hardest talk I've ever had to give. We loaded up the kids in the car and started to drive home. And uh, Rebecca started to doze off, and the kids were napping in the back seat. As I was driving down the highway, it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon, sunny outside like today. I began to sort of think about Trent and his life. Um, it was several weeks before Christmas, and I wondered what he was planning on getting his kids for Christmas that year. And then I began to think about Trent's career. He had really wanted a big promotion at work, and he had done a number of different things in recent months trying to, to land a big promotion. I wondered if he was close to that or, you know, if that was going to happen. And then, then I began thinking about Trent and his life and what it might look like down the road wondered, what did he think he would be doing in 10 to 15 years from now? And at the very moment when that thought went across my head, I remembered that conversation I had had a month earlier with Price, the search consultant, who had asked me, do you ever see yourself moving to administration? And I said, oh, yeah, but, but, but maybe 10 to 15 years from now. As I drove down the highway that day, I realized... You know, we are not promised tomorrow. John chapter 10 says, night cometh. We live our life as if we're totally in control. And in fact, we're not in control at all. And I also realized that there was at least a part of me that was not open to this opportunity because, frankly, I was really proud of the fact that I had landed a tenure-track position at a nationally ranked institution, that things were going really well. I had all the resources I needed. Everything was very comfortable. People liked me. I was around an environment that I knew and I understood. And then at the very moment when the Lord said, would you be open to something, my immediate response was, it's not for me. That was a moment of great conviction. 
over the next several hours, I spent time praying and confessing to the Lord that I had lived my whole life as a hypocrite. <laughs> I'd said, you know, here I am, send me. But then in the very moment when you maybe want to send me, I wasn't really open to that. But I also knew that in my better moments, I did genuinely want to be in the center of God's will. And if that involved learning how to drive in the snow <laughs> or to understand people who I didn't always understand, that I'd be open to that. And by the time I got out of that car, I had committed to the Lord that I would apply for the job at Gordon. And if in his providence he led me there, that someday, somewhere, I would tell the story of my cousin Trent, a modern-day Good Samaritan, who became a parable in my own life. That I would tell that story as a way of redeeming his loss, and affirming to other people not to be one who passes by on the other side. This morning, I make good on that promise. Friends, we're not promised tomorrow. Every single day, the Lord puts opportunities along our way. Maybe it's in the form of somebody who needs a word of encouragement or practical help. Or maybe it's a, a calling that he's making on your life that may be a little bit different than what you had expected or planned. But the clear message of Scripture is that we are not to be ones who pass by on the other side. Instead, we are to be ones who go and meet the needs that the Lord has put before us. So may we be those kinds of people. May we be the kinds of folks who say, Lord, I am your servant, here to do your bidding. Leave me this day. May it be so with us. Let's pray. Lord, in our better moments, we really do want to be that kind of person who is open to your leading. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see where you are at work, to give us the courage to take the steps we need to join you in that important work. And we do pray, Father, that we might be able to step out in faith to whatever the calling might be upon our lives. I pray for each and every one of us in this room this morning would be led by you some way, somehow, this week to see where you want us to do something. And that you call us out to not be somebody who passes by on the other side but instead meets the needs and follows the call you put before us. Give us the courage to be those kinds of people. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.